Good morning, everyone. Uh, my name is Peter Donnelly. I'm a consultant pediatric intensivist based in Glasgow. Uh, I'd like to thank the organizers of this conference uh, for inviting me to present a case uh, focusing on symptomatic hyponatremia. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to outline a case of symptomatic hyponatremia, and I'm going to use that case to facilitate um, some learning and some discussion around emergency management an approach to making a diagnosis uh, using this particular case as a basis, and then we'll work towards solving the diagnosis for this case. So I'll start and get right into the case itself. This is a published case uh, that's freely available, um, and it describes an eight-month-old child who is six kilograms in weight, who presents on day three of antibiotics being treated for a urinary tract infection, and you're also told that they have two-day history of diarrhea and vomiting. Now, on this particular occasion, the presenting complaint is of seizures. You are informed that they have had two doses of midazolam before they have made it as far as A&E, um, and a recess call has been put out. So, as with all of these cases, we start with an initial assessment using an ABC approach. The first thing you notice when you arrive in recess from the end of the bed is that this patient is clearly still seizing. So that's the first and most obvious thing about the patient. With regards to their airway, um, they have a mask on, giving them 10 litres of oxygen. Their saturations are 100% on that. They have a respiratory rate of about 8. You don't notice any particular airway sounds, no strider, no stutter. They're certainly not vocalising. Um, they look pale, their capillary refill time is prolonged, around six seconds. Their heart rate is about 140, varying between 140 and 160. And their blood pressure is 82 over 61. They currently have a temperature of about 38.4. Their pupils seem to be reacting equally. But clinically, you feel this patient is a little bit dry, a little bit dehydrated. The emergency department team have already cited two peripheral cannulas. You're told that they have sent off routine bloods and they have performed a blood gas, which they hand to you as you arrive. So this slide describes the blood gas that you're presented with. The pH is 7.66. The PCO2 is around 6. The PO2 is 8. The bicarb is 49. The base excess is positive at 22.8. There's also electrolytes provided on that gas. The sodium, surprise, surprise, for a case of symptomatic hyponatremia is 111. The potassium is 1.7. The chloride is 62. The blood sugar is 8.1. And the lactate is 2.1. So my first question to everybody listening would be, how would you describe this picture? How would you describe the abnormalities in this blood gas? This blood gas shows a hyponatremic, hypochloremic, hypokalemic metabolic alkalemia. And I have put the patient's blood results there on this slide alongside the normal range just to indicate where the abnormalities are. So there are a few key points before we go further regarding hyponatremia. Firstly, how would you define it? Well, hyponatremia is defined as a serum sodium less than 135 millimoles per litre. 
In paediatrics, most children with a sodium greater than 125, they're usually asymptomatic, but as it falls, they become increasingly symptomatic. And usually a sodium less than 120 will present with features such as headache, lethargy, and as in this case, seizures. So let's move the case forward and think about how we're going to start and initiate some emergency management for this case. If we thought about that airway, as I, as I mentioned earlier, the saturations are 100%. They're not making any particular added sounds. They're not vocalizing. The respiratory rate is eight. So what do we want to do about this patient's airway? We probably have a couple of options here. We could intubate them and, and ventilate them. We could do nothing and accept that we're happy uh, with how they are right now, but we're going to keep a close eye. We could support their airway, give them a little bit of positive end expiratory pressure with a mask and a T-piece. Are we going to call for help, get some more senior input? What would you do in this particular circumstance? I'll tell you what I would do. Uh, my approach would be to support the airway, to give some positive end expiratory pressure, to ask for assistance, and um, to start thinking about how I can manage the underlying problem. Why have I done that? Why have I not gone ahead and intubated this patient? Well, intubation is not without risk. Every patient is a little bit unknown when they first present and they've never had any airway instrumentation before. This particular patient has got abnormalities in their blood gas and they also have abnormalities in their electrolytes. That adds additional risk to giving this patient any anaesthetic agents and to performing any airway procedures. As you know, when a patient has a metabolic alkalemia, they will try to compensate for that by letting their CO2 rise, uh, trying to balance out the acidity levels with the alkalemia. So the question would be, when you give this patient an anaesthetic, how easy will it be for you as the intensivist or as the airway practitioner to try and match that patient's own response? And I think it's really important to always remember a lot of the time what we see is a patient having a physiological response to pathophysiology. If we start to interfere with that, it is not difficult for us to make things worse. And you see this with conditions that result in acidemia, such as DKAs. If you intervene and perform airway procedures, there's high risk that you can't match what that patient is actually trying to do for themselves. So I would think very carefully about performing an airway procedure on a patient like this and giving them an anesthetic. There is a caveat to that in that if they are unstable, if their airway is not maintained or you're concerned about it, or there is hemodynamic instability, then you may indeed have to go and intubate and ventilate this patient. And in this case, although I'm not ventilating them now, I may need to as the case progresses. So I'm thinking, I want to stop this seizure because I'm concerned. How am I going to do that? Now, there are a number of medications that we can think about, and this is not an exhaustive list, but I want you to think about what you would like to give as your first agent to try and stop this patient's seizure. Do you want to give them some glucose? Do you want to give them some Keppra, some levetiracetam, some hypertonic saline, some phenytoin, maybe some phenobarb? Do you want to give them another dose of a benzodiazepine, maybe trilorazepam or, or more midazolam? Do you want to give them peraldehyde or is there another agent you want to give them? And I want you to think about that. 
we're reflecting all the time back on our ABCs and we've made a plan for our airway and we're happy with our saturations. Cardiovascularly, if you remember, I mentioned that they were a little bit on the dry side, a little bit tachycardic, a little bit cool peripherally with a prolonged cap refill time. So you're going to want to give this patient some fluids. So you're thinking about fluids in terms of managing the C at the same time that you're thinking about stopping the seizure, which falls under D. So I would also question, is there any option that you can give that might try and address both of those issues? What would I do? My approach would be to give this patient hypertonic saline. What does the evidence say about doing that? Well, the evidence suggests that hyponatremic seizures may be refractory to anticonvulsants. For hyponatremic seizures, usually an increase in sodium of between three and seven millimoles per litre is enough to terminate a seizure. A standard dose of three mils per kilo may actually be enough to increase your sodium by two to three millimoles per litre. And a lot of people will have concern about correcting sodiums because rapid correction can result in osmotic demyelination, uh, central pontine myelinolysis, um, and, and these present as quite significant irreversible neurological morbidity. So there's understandably some concern, but my approach would be to use hypertonic saline uh, to try and correct the underlying problem of the seizures, and that has the additional benefit of also providing some fluid resuscitation for the patient. So how much hypertonic saline do you want to give? Well, most places will have their own recommendation, and usually it's based on either published evidence or published guidance. And the first caveat to whatever you do, given that you're concerned about rapidly correcting sodium, is to note that the risk of morbidity from delayed treatment is greater than the risk of any osmotic demyelination problems from an overly rapid correction. Seizures are not good for the brain, and it's really important that we try to treat the underlying problem. So what I've included here is a treatment algorithm um, from the Department of Health. Again, this is freely available from the Pediatric Emergencies app. And it suggests giving two mils per kilo as your initial fluid pulse over 10 minutes. And if the patient remains symptomatic to repeat that, give another two mils per kilo over 10 minutes. And if they remain symptomatic, to give a third colus dose. If they're still symptomatic after three doses, it suggests that you reconsider the diagnosis. Now, there are different um, volumes suggested in different guidelines, and they can vary from the two mils per kilo you see here up to seven mils per kilo. It depends what guidance you're following, um, but they all would suggest giving it in 10 to 30 minutes, roughly as a duration. Once you've corrected that, you, you also need to then think about, I don't want to correct this sodium too quickly, so how quickly should I then correct it once I've dealt with the, the acute side of things? And this um, algorithm quite clearly says that for the first 48 hours, you want the maximum rise in your serum sodium of about 20 millimoles per litre. Most guidance will agree roughly with that and suggest that in 24 hours, you want your serum sodium to have risen by 12. So approximately half a millimole per litre every hour. This slide shows another um, guideline, and this was taken from the Royal Children's Hospital in Melbourne. And this is a quite nice diagram because it allows you just to follow using this flow chart how you can manage your patient. And you can see from this chart that it starts off with, does your, see, does your patient have seizures or encephalopathy? 
And of course, in this particular case, relating it to our case, they do. So this immediately puts them into the right-hand side of this diagram. So let's focus up on that for the purposes of this case. This is a medical emergency. Let's make that clear. Contact ICU urgently. So you'll note earlier one of the options was calling for help. So this guideline makes it very clear that we should be doing that early. They suggest giving three to five mils per kilo of 3% saline over 15 to 30 minutes. Measuring urea and electrolytes. They suggest that you correct the sodium by no more than two millimoles per hour in the first three to four hours. So roughly increasing it by eight and four hours. So that's significantly faster than the chronicity with which you want to raise your serum sodium after the seizure has terminated. And that's very clear in this flowchart. You move on then to the question of have your seizures terminated or is the sodium risen to greater than 125 millimoles per litre? And if it has, you're then into the realm of slow sodium correction. And again, this suggests 12 millimoles per litre in the first 24 hours with careful four-hourly lab monitoring. My personal approach in cases like this is, is to do your uh, lab bloods every four hours, but I would supplement that with doing blood gases every hour initially to track my, my sodium rise. And as I'm happy with what I'm doing, I can space that to two hourly. Um, but I'd be very, very careful about monitoring this sodium level closely. What about maintenance fluid? We've talked a little bit about how we manage the initial presentation with hypertonic saline and how we try to get that fast initial rise in sodium followed by a slower rise. But how do we achieve that slower rise? What maintenance fluid do we want to give to our patient? And again, as with anything else, there are options. Do you want to continue a hypertonic saline infusion? Do you want to use 0.9% saline? Do you want to use balanced solutions like Hartman's or Plasmalite? Do you want to use Albion or do you want to use something else? And I would let you think about that for a second. What fluid would you like to use in your institution? And then you think about what fluid you want to, to use, then how much do you want to give? So again, there are options. Do you want to give this patient full maintenance fluids plus a deficit because you think they're clinically dry? Do you want to just give them full maintenance initially? Do you want to restrict them a little bit to two thirds? Do you want to give them half maintenance? What do you want to do? What would I do? My fluid of choice for this patient is 0.9% saline. And the reasons for that are because this patient is low in sodium and low in chloride. So this is an appropriate fluid to use in this particular circumstance. There are intensivists uh, throughout the country, throughout the world, who are keen advocates of balanced solution in favour of the acidemia that you might get um, and the renal impairment you may get from using lots of 0.9% saline. That differs between uh, the intensivists that you speak to, but those who prefer balanced solutions would largely be in agreement that in this particular circumstance, 0.9% saline is actually the fluid of choice. In terms of deciding what rate you want to run your 0.9% saline at, there's a few considerations that you might want to think about. The first is the clinical status of the patient. We know they're a little bit on the dry side. But what do they actually need in terms of fluid? What we fundamentally want to achieve is a safe and steady rate of rise in their serum sodium. 
So my approach to this would be to calculate out this patient's deficit and maintenance requirements. Their deficit in terms of their sodium can be calculated using the uh, equation on the slide. 135 minus our patient's serum sodium times 0.6 times their weight in kilograms, and that will give you how many millimoles of sodium you want to give them to replace their deficit. You then want to consider what their maintenance sodium will be. That is largely two to four millimoles per kilo. If they're an older child or slightly bigger, I'd be um, keen to start that at two millimoles per kilo because their requirement is slightly less. So what you can do is work out maintenance fluids over 48 hours, two millimoles per kilo per day, um, and then add on your deficit and calculate out how much sodium you want to give this patient in the first 24 and subsequent 48 hours. Then, because you have decided to use 0.9% saline, you can look at the bag of fluid, you can see how many millimoles of sodium are in each bag, and you can calculate out in a 24-hour period and in a 48-hour period, how many mils of this fluid do you want to give them? And that can be adjusted to give you your mils per hour hourly rate. And that's how I would approach my starting point to how much fluid I'm going to give this patient. The subsequent rate and how you adjust that depends on the rate of sodium rise. So what's really important is that we have recognized that this patient has got deranged biochemistry and we need to take an ACR approach, act on it, check it, repeat it. And we need to continually do that. We need to check that we are happy that we are achieving a rise of 0.5 millimoles per liter each hour. We don't want to overshoot it because of the complications that we might get from that. So you can adjust your rate of fluid up and down depending on what your sodium is doing. And that's why I'd be keen to do blood gases early initially, just to make sure that I'm being as safe as I can be. Okay, so for our case, the seizures have stopped. You have replaced their electrolytes in that you have got maintenance fluids going. You have tried to optimize their other electrolytes. If you remember from the initial slide, the potassium was also low. So you've added that onto the fluids and you're, you're watching that carefully. And there are ways to replace potassium um, in a faster and safer way using a peripheral approach or using a central line. I'm not going to go into those for the purposes of this talk, but they also are, are included in the Pediatric Emergencies app. So you're happy. Congratulations. You've, you've managed through this acute event. But we've got some more thinking today. Hey, how are we going to find out what is actually going on with our patient? What's our approach to making a diagnosis? Well, fundamentally, if you look up most textbooks, um, look up online, um, most approaches to making a diagnosis about the etiology of hyponatremia center around clinical assessment of the hydration status of your patient to help guide you in a direction. So that's something that I think is, is really fundamental. And what I've included here is um, an excerpt from Harrison's Manual of Medicine. And it does exactly that. It tells us to assess our patient's volume status to point us down um, which direction of the flowchart we want to move in. If you remember, again, our patient was tachycardic, peripherally a bit cool, prolonged cap refill time. We thought clinically they were a bit dry. So that puts us into the hypovolemia side of, of this uh, flowchart, which is on the left. So let's move to that. So we are hypovolemic. We have a reduction in total body water, um, but a more pronounced reduction in total body sodium, which is why the overall sodium concentration has fallen. Now, 
This textbook suggests that we should then look at the urinary sodium, but unfortunately that can take a little bit of time to come back, certainly where I work. So we'll park that for the moment, and we'll just have a look at these differentials in terms of what the diagnosis might be. So we might be losing sodium from extra renal losses, vomiting, diarrhea, that was certainly evident in our history, and burns, pancreatitis, trauma, or it could be renal losses. Is there a, a renal tubulopathy? Have we got some uh, mineralocorticoid deficiency? Have we got cerebral salt wasting? There's a number of potential diagnoses here. And I think it's worth us thinking about what do we think is likely? What do we think is not likely? How would we prioritize our list? And this is my thought process on this one. Could it be a tubulopathy? Absolutely it could be. I don't really have enough from the story to say definitely not or definitely yes as yet. Could be Barter's, could be Pseudobarter's, could be Gittleman's. Those are all options. In terms of the non-renal losses, thinking about burns or trauma, well, there's no history of that. So I don't think that's likely. Vomiting and diarrhea, I don't believe that. You know, two days of vomiting and diarrhea to have such a profound effect, that to me seems unlikely. I can't totally discount it but it's not high up on my list because I think it's just the clinical presentation is so severe unless there's something else going on. Diuretics, patient isn't on any diuretics. Cerebral salt wasting, well, we can say that this patient had a prolonged seizure. Let's assume that they've went through a CT scan. As far as you're aware, there are no intracerebral lesions of any description. You don't think that's likely. Could it be a chloride losing enteropathy? Could be. Could it be something else? Absolutely, it can always be something else. So although you're trying to tick some things off in terms of likelihood, always remember to keep an open mind, just in case you've got something wrong, just in case there are other things uh, confounding your clinical assessment of the patient. You may need to revisit this. So what is at the top of my likely list? I'm thinking, is this a tubulopathy? I'm thinking, could this be a chloride losing enteropathy? Does this make sense? It's quite a, quite a severe presentation. So I'm thinking, I am only an intensivist. I need somebody smart. I need somebody intelligent that's actually going to help me work this out. I'll support their organ systems, but maybe some extra brains on this would be really helpful. So I want to phone somebody. And just as I go to phone a friend, my phone rings, and it's one of my trainees. My trainee says, I sent off some bloods, and they've come back. And the urinary chloride is low, the aldosterone level is normal, the renin is high, the ionized calcium is low, the ammonia is 82, and we did an ECG that shows a long QT interval. What does that mean? So at this stage, what do I want to do? I absolutely want to phone a friend right now because I've just been given all of these complex renal investigations that I have to try and, and put into some sensible uh, pattern that would explain what's going on here. So I want some extra brains. So I ring one of my friendly nephrology colleagues because I said to them, I think this sounds renal to me. I've got renal investigations sitting in front of me. They're abnormal. Can you help me put them into some sort of context? So your, your friendly nephrologist is on their way down, but you're thinking to yourself, what can I do until they arrive to try and figure this out? Take the challenge. So there's a couple of papers that are quite useful in this scenario. If you do think it might be something renal, 
Um, and one is called Approach to Renal Tubular Disorders, and one is called Barter and Gittleman Syndromes, Questions of Class. And what's really nice about these papers are that they go through a, a diagnostic approach to try and help you determine whether it actually is one of these disorders or not. So for example, they include a nice table of features suggesting that you're on, you're on the right lines here, this probably is some sort of tubulopathy. Do they have growth retardation or failure to thrive? Do they have polyuria, polydipsia, unexplained hypertension? And actually, that shows that it's really important that we go back and take a really full thorough history for this patient to find out what signs and symptoms they may have had. And in terms of laboratory findings, I've circled a really key important one here, a metabolic alkalosis with or without hypokalemia. So that fits perfectly with the case that we've described earlier today. And again, in these papers, it has a really nice flowchart that helps us try and work our way down the list to find out what the potential diagnosis might be. So if you've got a metabolic alkalosis, hypokalemia, you want to fundamentally check the urinary chloride. And that will quickly determine whether you're in a pseudo-barter's algorithm sort of side or whether it could be something else. It could be barter's, it could be Gittleman's, it could be hyperaldosteronism, it could be other things. So the urinary chloride is really, really important. And luckily, that was one of those investigations that your trainee had phoned to give you over the phone. So I've just put them into a table here just to try and help us delineate what our case is most in keeping with. Now, normally when you do these tables, it doesn't quite fit with what the textbooks say. There's something that's just not 100% as you'd expect, but it helps us narrow things down a little bit. So if we look at the metabolic alkalemia, yes, that's present in Barter's, Kittleman's, Pseudobarter's, this case, hypokalemia the same, hypochloremia the same. The urinary chloride is where things differ a little bit, and our patient had a low urinary chloride which puts us down the line of pseudobarters rather than barters or Gittleman's. Again, um, if you look through the table, the renin, the aldosterone, there can be variation in these things. Um, and in our case, the renin was high and the aldosterone was normal, which might be a little bit surprising when you think that they were hypovolemic. So we'll come back to that. So just to be clear, when we look at this table, it seems like our patient is quite well in keeping with having pseudobarters. So you think you've got it, you think you're happy, this patient has got pseudobarters, but unfortunately they don't have real barters, do they? So why do they have pseudobarters? So we've got some more work to do. So what I'm just going to do is just recap some of the salient points of this case, just to try and point towards what the overall diagnosis was. So let's recap the original story. This patient's weight was eight kilos. Is that significant? What do you think? They presented with a urinary tract infection and subsequently had some diarrhea and vomiting. Diarrhea and vomiting isn't good for your electrolytes, regardless of what the diagnosis is. And in terms of the original investigations, they had a normal aldosterone. And I've already mentioned that's a bit surprising because the patient was hypovolemic. Why would they have a normal aldosterone? And they had a long QT on the ECG. Additional details that you then find when you speak to the family were that they weren't born um, in this country, so they haven't actually had their newborn screening performed. And when you ask a little bit more about the urinary tract infection, you find out that they're currently on trimethoprim for treatment. Now, when you look up trimethoprim, incidentally, that's associated with a long QT. 
So suddenly you've got something that actually it makes sense. Okay, so we can explain that long QT. They also have faltering growth whenever you plot them. So when you plot their birth weight and you plot their subsequent weight that they presented at, they seem to be faltering a little bit. They've crossed centiles. So you're thinking we have something going on that when they have diarrhea and vomiting, their electrolyte loss becomes even more pronounced than you would expect. They haven't had newborn screening and they have faltering growth. Is this pointing you towards a particular diagnosis? Well, what are the likely causes of pseudobarters? What are the common causes? And those papers I referred to earlier quite nicely list some. Could this patient have a congenital chloride diarrhea? Well, they've only had two-day history of diarrhea, so that wouldn't be in keeping. Could they have laxative abuse? No story of that. Could they have cystic fibrosis? Yes. Could they have cyclical vomiting? They've only had two days of vomiting. So very quickly, we're starting to think, could this child have cystic fibrosis? And indeed, that is the underlying diagnosis for this case. And that was confirmed on subsequent testing. So I'd like just to finish just by mentioning a few key learning points for me whenever uh, I reflect on cases such as this. And the first thing is, is that ventilating patients with abnormal acid base is risky. Now, you may have to do it, but it's just an extra consideration, and I would think very carefully about doing it. The best way to protect the brain in these cases is to stop the seizure. And it's important to recognize that um, in, in situations of hyponatremia, the way you stop it is to correct the sodium rather than working through lots of other anti-epileptic drugs. The risk of morbidity is higher from delayed treatment than from rapid correction of the sodium, and that's really important. But that does not take away the risk of continued rapid correction in your serum sodium. I would say not to dismiss 0.9% saline for balanced solutions, and this is a prime example of when it really is the appropriate fluid of choice. And careful volume status is really important. Consider it, plan your fluid replacement, and plan it very carefully. And fundamental to that is having a really, really close eye on your electrolytes. When you get to thinking about etiologies, urinary chloride is a simple way to differentiate your barter skittlements from your pseudo barters when you get to that point. And what's really interesting, and I, and I haven't talked much about this, is that there are papers that now um, talk about how hypokalemia inhibits aldosterone secretion more so than the hypovolemia stimulates aldosterone. And that explains the aldosterone result that we had for our patient. I would also suggest you make friends with the nephrology team. They will be your saviors in cases such as these. And never be afraid to ask for help, because I think that's really important. I've included some references. Um, I'm happy to share those. I'd like to thank uh, Costas for, for sourcing the, the case. Uh, and I encourage you all to follow him on Twitter and get involved with his uh, weekly quizzes and uh, the discussion uh, pertaining to each of those. It's really interesting. And the course organizers and Chris for having me. Thank you so much.